we really could be eating much more local and it would be really fun. We could be incorporating a lot more of these flavors into our diet and it's actually better for the planet because these are the plants that grow here. Mm. They're the things that do well naturally without inputs of fertilizer and water. So that's something that I really want to see. Hello and welcome to Golden State Naturalist, a podcast for anyone who's ever been hiking and wanted a snack. I'm Michelle Fulner, and today we're talking foraging with Mia Andler, whose voice you just heard. In this episode, you'll hear about edible plants, the ethics of foraging, how to harvest pine nuts, deadly plants and how to avoid them, the difference between edibility and palatability, eating weeds, how not to get stung by stinging nettles, foraging in cities, medicinal plants, and how eating local foods can actually be better for the planet we live on while enriching our lives in more ways than we might imagine. Before we get to that, I have updates for you. First, I want to remind you that this is a bonus episode dropping right in the middle of the season break because I miss you and I thought foraging would be a really cool thing to try out while you wait for new episodes. Some of those new episodes are going to be on tide pools, redwood trees, art, like nature art, California condors, and also a whole bunch more. So make sure you're following the show wherever you listen to get updated on those as soon as they're released. Now, when season three does start, you're going to notice that the show art is getting a glow up. It's still going to be the bear with the poppies, which I designed and painted when I started the show. But the new version is so bold and beautiful and detailed, and I absolutely love it. Lots more on that when season three starts, but I wanted to bring it up now because I got new stickers made for the new art, and I'm going to be mailing them out to everyone supporting the show on Patreon with the start of season three. Patreon is absolutely the reason I'm able to keep making this show, so I want to express my gratitude to every single person supporting me over there. If you're already on Patreon, make sure to send me a private message with your address so I can get you a sticker. And if you're listening to this and you're not on Patreon yet, you can join for as little as $4 a month and you'll get a new sticker too if you sign up by the end of July. Another really exciting thing happening in the Patreon community is that I'm starting a patrons-only book club over there. We're going to read fantastic books about natural history and ecology and discuss them every month with a community of wonderful, kind human beings who care about things that matter. There's absolutely room for you there too, and I hope to see you on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Michelle Fulner. That's Michelle with two L's and Fulner is F-U-L-L-N-E-R. Also, now that I've quit my job to work on Golden State Naturalist full-time, I've been able to put time and energy into hosting more in-person events and workshops. If you want to be the first to find out about those as I announce them, head over to my website, which is goldenstatenaturalist.com, and join my email list. While you're there, know that I'm just starting to develop my blog, and I recently created a post about beginner-friendly nature journaling supplies, specifically for people who already have too many hobbies. So check that out, and maybe even head over to the Golden State Naturalist store while you're there and grab some merch with the current Baron Poppies before that art goes away. Okay, that was so much. Let's get to foraging. Mia Andler is the author of the beautiful new book, The Sierra Forager, and co-author of The Bay Area Forager. She's committed to facilitating meaningful connection to nature and is the founder and executive director of Vilda, a nonprofit that runs nature connection programs for children in Tahoe, Truckee, and the San Francisco Bay Area. She's been foraging since she was a little girl in Finland and has studied the regenerative practices of Earth-based cultures around the world. So without further ado, let's hear from Mia Andler on Golden State Naturalist. 
I met up with Mia in the middle of May, not far from Lake Tahoe, in the Sierra Nevada mountains, right beside a very full and fast-moving Truckee River. Even though there were still occasional patches of snow on the ground where we were at around 6,000 feet of elevation, the plants around us had started to wake up from their winter dormancy. Beneath the pines and the firs, native currants were beginning to flower. And beside the river, the leaves of willows were just starting to burst from their otherwise bare stems. Each of our footsteps was padded by a spongy layer of pine needles on the ground. I couldn't help but wonder what this place looked like to Mia's trained eye. How many plants do you see that we can eat? Like, as you just look around. Oh, I love that question. That's kind of what I do in my mind often. I'm like, oh, which plants are here? Which plants are likely to be here? Let's see. There's sagebrush. There's wild currant. There's pine and fir and willow. That on the other side is probably a dock. Grass is edible. Rushes are technically edible. Mm. A lot of them rushes or sedges. Oh, aspen. Oh, cottonwoods. 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 And, well, not exact, not like you're going to chow down on the cottonwood. Technically, you could eat some of the leaves, but it's not necessarily what you want to be eating. Mm -hmm. Like there's edibility, like can you eat it? Is it not poisonous? But then there's also palatability. Uh That's the right (laughs) way. So is it too spiky to eat or is it uncomfortable or is it just bitter? Right. Like, I mean, even dandelions, a lot of those are really bitter. Mm -hmm. So would you actually want to eat it is another question. So even though Mia and I were surrounded by edible plants, not all of them were necessarily things you'd want to take a big bite out of exactly as they were. And some would taste better in other seasons, including the pine needles we sampled. For pine and firs, I actually just taste them and there's some that taste really good in Mm -hmm. certain seasons Mm -hmm. and then others that are bitter. I like most of them. This one's pretty good. Yeah. But it does that thing to your tongue where it kind of makes it like dry almost. I know what you mean. But it's, it still has a good flavor, this one. And it's so unique. That's not like something you buy at the grocery store. Right. But then if you wait when it has its little like new sprigs, light green, those mm. are just like you can actually eat them mm. like in a salad or nice. something while this is an older green. So just like all older greens, it has a kind of a more intense, rougher taste. And like the texture too is like kind of pokey. Yeah, exactly. But I still like to kind of chew on one every now and then and or you could make it into a tea. But my style of foraging is that this is exactly how I do it. What we're doing right now Mm -hmm. is I very rarely harvest large quantities. I instead hike or do whatever I'm doing outside. And then when I see something that's edible, I just grab a little piece and I eat it like Mm -hmm. more kind of like somebody pointed out to me like a deer grazing. So you can graze on pine and fir needles, or as Mia suggested earlier, you can make them into a tea. And according to WebMD, the needles are high in vitamin C. So making a cup of pine needle tea can be a great boost and apparently very soothing if you're sick. Just make sure you're not using needles from a yew tree, which is poisonous, or from a ponderosa pine, which is especially bad for pregnant people. And there might be other similar looking trees to watch out for. So as you listen to this episode, remember that with every single thing you forage or cook, what you put into your body is your responsibility. And it's your job to stay safe. Lots of things out there can kill you or make you very sick. So use reputable field guides to double and triple check that any plant or mushroom or anything you want to consume is edible and you're identifying the species correctly. Nothing you hear on this podcast is dietary or medical advice. Please go talk to your doctor for dietary or medical advice. Okay, but once you've done your homework, 
that soothing cup of pine needle tea or a few fresh fur needles added to your salad would be lovely. And as you likely already know, the needles aren't the only edible part of these trees. Mia and I found some picked over pine cones on the forest floor, and we had to check them for one of our mutual favorite foods. Did the critter get a hold of that? Or? Probably. Okay, cool. And if we're lucky, maybe we find one that actually has Here's pine like nuts. a chewed one. Yeah, these are definitely favorite food of really a lot of animals. They're one of my favorite foods too. I oh, love pine yeah, nuts pine are nuts. so I good. Love pine nuts. They're probably these ones. Well, we could, Ooh, we yeah, could well, check. Yeah, like closed. Yeah. But then how do you get them out when they're like that? Oh my gosh, it, that is a question. <laughs> In some ways, it's really easy. So these pine cones at this high of an altitude, they have teeny pine nuts. But the ones that are really the ones that people harvest, which are usually called pinion pines, those pine nuts are bigger. Okay, but where can you find pinion pines? Calscape shows them all along the eastern Sierras, starting as far north as about Reno. But they're way more abundant as you go farther south down the eastern side of the Sierras. In Southern California, they're also all along the eastern side of the transverse and peninsular mountain ranges surrounding LA and San Diego. So there are lots of places to find these trees in kind of the southern and eastern parts of the state. And looking at a broader distribution map, I'm seeing that they're also across a lot of Nevada, a bit of western Utah, parts of Arizona, and a tiny little blip in Idaho. So those are your general regions if you'd like to try the really good pine nuts, the pinion pine nuts. And we're going to get more deeply into the legality and ethics of foraging in a little bit. But for now, just know that these trees are incredibly slow growing and don't start producing seeds for at least 35 years. And according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, they don't produce good seed crops for the first 100 years of their lives. So as with all things, don't take too much and make sure that there are plenty of pine nuts left behind for wildlife, for the trees to reseed themselves, and for indigenous people whose families have been utilizing these trees and taking care of them for millennia. Okay, but I know my NorCal people also want pine nuts, and you may have noticed that there aren't a whole lot of pinion pine trees close to us up here. So I did my best Googling for you, and it looks like a great species for pine nuts of this way is the gray pine. Their distribution map shows them pretty much ringing the entire bathtub of the Central Valley, and they grow from sea level to about 4,000 feet in elevation. If you've ever been hiking where they grow, I'm sure you've seen their cones. They're about the size of a pineapple, which just don't stand under one of these trees if it's windy. If you want to know more, I actually found an article in The Atlantic called California's Forgotten Pine Nuts, all about gray pine nuts and how to get them out of their shells and how they taste, which is apparently better than grocery store pine nuts, but not as good as pinion pine nuts. I'll link that in the show notes. Okay, but Mia has experience harvesting pine nuts, so let's hear her talk about it. And so what people do is they harvest the whole pine cone and they, when it's not open yet, and they leave it out to dry. Mm. And then everything just ideally falls out when you kind of bang it with oh, some. Okay. Whether that actually happens that smoothly, I. I'm usually around species that aren't the main ones that people harvest, So, and I do harvest the ones here. Mm -hmm. When I've tried to do it like that, I've had mixed luck, but okay. last year we were really lucky and we had such a good pine nut harvest. Nice. They were just falling out all over my driveway. And then what time of year would that be, that you're finding the cones with the pine nuts in them like pretty abundantly? That would be in the late summer or early fall. Okay. So late summer, early fall for pine nuts, spring for fresh green sprigs, and you can also eat pine pollen. Check for that in the spring as well. 
right around when you start to see yellow dust coating all the cars. You can add it into a smoothie for extra nutrition, or even replace a small amount of flour for a recipe you're making. One blog that I saw recommended not to replace more than a quarter of the flour in a recipe with pollen. It might also just be difficult to gather pollen in those quantities. So there are a lot of great foods right outside your door if you know what you're looking for. But actually identifying which plants are edible means honing your powers of observation. You can start to notice things like the color of plants, the shape of the leaves, and whether their edges are smooth or not, the texture of bark, how many petals the flowers have, and so much more. One of the things I was noticing when we were looking at the sagebrush before is that the leaf color is like, it's got almost this like white powdery look to it. Uh It's got like this darker green underneath with like this white powdery look under it. But then when we look over here to the left, this other plant that's uh-huh. right under the same tree has this really vibrant green color. So what is this yeah, one? Yeah, that's, I, I love that you're noticing colors because I always encourage people to like, well, get really in there and notice mm. like what's different about this one and that one and even that one, like the color difference really is clear. Different, this yeah. one's really light and silvery green and that one's bright. And then that one is forest 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 and so yeah this bright plant with these kind of curly leaves with well they're sticky too with three parts almost like a teeny tiny maple leaf that's curled Mm -hmm. up this one is a wild current and it does not have berries yet and it won't until much later in the summertime at which time it'll develop these usually bluish berries that incidentally usually have a white kind of powdery coating on them almost like a grape like yeah, some like grapes yeast have that. On a grape. Yeah, okay. exactly. It might even be a yeast, actually. It might be the same thing that happens to little currants. But so currants, as a family, there's many, many edible plants that if you know the family, then you're on the right track, and you can kind of assume that many of them are, are edible in that okay. family. So this current family is one of them. Here in the Tahoe region, we don't have a very rewarding current to eat. Like in Europe, there's these really juicy half cultivated or cultivated mm. currants that are like black currants oh, okay. that are really tasty to make into juice and these are technically black currants they're dark colored currants but they're kind of seedy i like mm. them most when they kind of dry up and they're almost like little teeny currants like raisins yeah oh cute yeah i love that so i do eat them but the the seeds are so big in mm. comparison to the fruit that you get that seed taste like if you've ever eaten a grape seed it's really similar to that and then there's gooseberries in the same family which are really strikingly beautiful both the flowers and the berry (laughs) it's kind of a funny comparison because I'm like what does the berry look like it looks like the coronavirus picture oh my gosh that's so funny well that's very memorable for all of us (laughs) yeah here in 2023 yeah it has huge spikes around a circle and it's even that same color they often use the purplish like magenta yeah so that sierra gooseberry is very tasty inside but you have to deal with the spikes so technically Mm. you could like crush it okay and then squeeze out the juice or you could go through the cumbersome process of peeling off the individual one spikes so that's this family of plant though currently there's not much we can eat on that part i think mia slipped a current pun in there just to keep us on our toes Side note, if I had to make a hierarchy of the most punnable nature words, bee, like as in the insect bee, would obviously be at the top, and current is currently second on my list. But if you're like me, you're a little nervous about eating berries in the woods, even if those berries are excellent for wordplay. 
I mean, lots of plants are poisonous, right? Turns out it depends on where you are. But yes, the answer is yes. Do you see any dangerous plants right now? Can you look and see any that are... You know, we're quite lucky in this region that our hazards are really much more minimal than mm -hmm. at the sea level. There are large quantities of water hemlock, but I don't see any right now. But it is definitely something to be aware of. And poison hemlock mm -hmm. is common as well. Other than that, there are obviously a lot of toxic plants. There just mm -hmm. aren't that many that you would be likely to forage for. Like there's also the skunk cabbages or the, oh, the one that's probably good to know about is the, the death camas lilies, which really resemble the, the, the edible camas. Those are probably the main ones you would want to kind of think of for foraging. And then the pennyroyal, which is a mint that is kind of, could be toxic, especially to pregnant people. Mm. But some people also just drink pennyroyal tea as the famous wow. Nirvana song says. And it's medicinal, but it is like they kind of recommend that children shouldn't have it. Mm. It's a strong mint. Okay. Those are kind of my instant foraging ones. And then, of course, the, apply, the rule applies. Don't harvest something you don't know what it is. Mm. Like, it, this is just we have the poisonous lookalikes. Yeah, those ones are the ones that really mm. scare me. If oh. you don't know, then I'd say don't do it. Because yeah. if the poisonous lookalike is deadly... You don't want to mess around with that. There's no backsies on that. No. And I, that's what I always say in my books is like, just avoid all carrot family until mm -hmm. you don't need this book, basically. Yeah. Like until you feel like you're so strong in your identification that you're just 150% sure. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, why risk it? Right. Yeah. There's yeah. no point. No, there's, there really isn't. Though I do know some foragers who are like, oh yeah, I'll try a little piece of it. Yeah, that doesn't seem edible. I'm like, whoa, you're so brave. Maybe <laughs> your system can handle it. I think mine couldn't. Yeah I'm, yeah, I'm with you. I would, I would be on the cautious side <laughs> yeah. for sure. Yeah, I have a grocery store down the street. I'm not in any kind of dire situation where I need to eat this. Right, exactly. I'm okay. Yeah, I'm okay. I have a yeah. sandwich in my backpack right now. Yeah, exactly. Always come prepared. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Exactly. Yeah, and I think you brought me one too, so I don't have to be eating anything questionable no. today either. Please don't. So we have edible plants, poisonous plants, and what about medicinal plants? Mia and I could see at least one of them from where we were standing near the river. Willow is medicinal. Willow leaves. Actually, some people really like the flavor, but I always consider it more of a medicinal plant. Isn't that where aspirin comes from? Yes. Willow? Okay. Mm -hmm. Willow bark. So a lot of people have willow bark tea for headaches and things like oh. that. And willow is an amazing medicinal plant and the animals use it. The deer use it too for pain relief Wow. as well. But if you have willows, which a lot of us do around because it's very common mm -hmm. around water, if you look at the bark, of the willows, you might find a spot where you see that something has rubbed on it and it's most probably a buck with their mm. antlers getting yeah. pain relief because it's painful to grow antlers. Wow. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's so, cool. so you can eat willow, but it's usually used as more of a medicine than a food, which brings up a really interesting point about foraging. There are different kinds of foraging for different purposes. Like It does depend. What are you foraging for? Are you there because you're a survivalist and you're wanting to go or a minimal backpacker. So you're actually interested in nutritional value and things that digest easily because you don't want to eat a bunch of something that even if it's high nutritional value, if it's causing you to have a stomach ache while you're out in the forest, mm -hmm. that's not going to be a good match. As an example of this digestibility issue, Mia mentioned grass. Humans can technically eat it. Grass isn't toxic to us. But we don't have four stomachs like cows do, or the right kind of microbes living in our gut. So we just can't digest it super well. And like calories too, like right. you calories, need a lot of calories. Right. So that's one category of like, okay, that's why you're foraging. 
are you foraging because it's fun and you're just trying different flavors and mm. wanting to get to know the plants and you actually have really no attachment besides not being poisoned <laughs> right. <laughs> to like the purpose or are you a cook or a foodie mm. and you're wanting things that are really tasty and grow in large abundant quantities so you can harvest it for your cooking project mm -hmm. so there are those different lenses of foraging yeah makes sense and it's good to point out because i will say that while i do know about wilderness survival i have never done a major wilderness survival time like i have been out for a couple nights and yeah. i have friends who've been out for Actually, I have a friend who just won that. That's the one that is the competition. Everybody knows it. The competition she's referring to is the History Channel's show alone. Mia's friend who won the competition is named Wonia Tebow. She actually competed twice, was the runner-up the first time she competed, and won the second time for a grand total of 123 days in the wilderness by herself with only 10 items she could bring with her. She was the first woman to win the competition, and she did so by emphasizing her relationship with the place where she was surviving. Absolute legend. But anyway, she won that and she was out in like Canada, like Northern Canada for- Oh my gosh. I, I don't know how long it was, but it was months. Like she's actually surviving on the land. Wow. Or another teacher's teacher of mine who actually lived in Central Park in New York and what? like said he could survive there off of the land and did for I don't know how many months again, but it was Whoa. like a half a year or a year. It might've been a year, like a year challenge. So every season, that's right. crazy. Especially so, snow was in New York in the winter. Yeah. I've been to Central Park in the winter and right. covered in snow. It's pretty amazing. Listening to this now, I feel like such a basic sea level Californian for being so impressed by snow, but it is impressive to survive in the snow, okay? The person who survived in Central Park is named Tom Brown Jr. And apparently the 2003 film The Hunted starring Tommy Lee Jones has a character based on him. It's Tommy Lee Jones's character. It's worth Googling. When I talk to those people, it's like with great respect that they're like, yeah, you know, a lot of the foraging books say that that's edible, but I'll tell you that when you're out there actually surviving, there's different kind of edibles. Once we had scouted out most of the edible plants near the river, we decided to walk up the trail to find a place to sit and talk for the interview. But on the way there, we saw some plants we knew we had to sample. This is a very good sized patch of nettles, which is actually what I'm out for right now. So nettles mm. is one of the few things that I will come out and harvest in mass, both because I know that's totally sustainable to do in most places and because I love nettles. I have seasonal allergies, so nettles are really good for me to help with nice. seasonal allergies. They're so rich in minerals. They're really a superfood and they taste really good to me. This is the perfect time to harvest nettles right when it's at this low height. It's the tastiest then. It's potent. It's nice. So I come out and I harvest them and then I often freeze them oh, so nice. that I have them for a longer period of time. Fantastic. Okay, but yeah. I'm scared of nettles because <laughs> a few weeks ago I was in Humboldt and I'm not really familiar with nettles. So I go like tromping around yeah. and they got in my ankles and it was like irritating me for like two days. Yeah. So how do you avoid that situation when you're harvesting them? You don't. Mia accepts that getting stung is part of the deal when it comes to harvesting nettles, but she did tell me that you can avoid most stings by wearing thick gloves for harvesting and thick pants so the stings don't get you through your clothes when you walk. There are also two more ways to avoid getting stung, which you'll hear about in a minute when we harvest the nettles. One of them is crazy. Mm, but don't promise that you will not get you know, stung. It's a risk I'm willing to take. <laughs> it's okay. We could try to go down here. Let's do it. 
Let's see. I'm going to walk around this. Yeah, right. Now I'm putting you in danger already. But this looks like a safe spot right here in the middle. And this next part is so important. Regardless of what it is you're harvesting, both for your own safety and for the plant and the ecosystem's health. So if you're multitasking, zero in on this part for the next couple of minutes. And when I harvest something, the first thing I do is I stop and I make sure that is really the plant that I'm looking at. Mm. Because I make mistakes too. Everybody does for whatever variety of reasons. Maybe you're wrong. Maybe that's not nettle. You don't want to make that mistake. You want to be 150% sure. So I stop and I look, is this really nettle? In this case, nettle is pretty easy to identify. You look for, well, you could sting yourself. And if it stings you, you're good. There's only very few varieties of nettle that don't sting. Okay. Mostly at farmer's markets where they've cultivated out the sting. So if it stings you, you're good to go. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to look at it and see that it has these leaves that have a sawtooth edge, but they're fairly large. They have your typical leaf veins. You can see them. The stem is square. They have little teeny hairs on them, and those are the stingers. And that's key for knowing about a nettle sting, is that those stingers, they're mechanical stingers. Mm. So if you break them, they cannot sting you. They break. Mm. They're like a little injector, actually. They inject formic acid or something very similar to formic acid, which is the acid that ants have in them. Yes, it is formic acid that's in the stings. So according to medical news today, the stings contain formic acid and histamine, along with acetylcholine and serotonin. And there's just a ton of traditional medicinal uses of stinging nettles. So super cool plant. So If you break them by crushing or by putting them in your blender or even with a spoon or even with your fingers, they should not be able to sing you. Of course, some of them are harder to break. So I'm looking at it and I'm now paused and I see that those are the identifying features of nettle. Plus, I know that nettle likes to grow in spots like this close to the water often. And so I feel pretty confident that this is nettle. And now I've stopped and done that. I've also assessed, is there some kind of nasty pesticide around? Is there dog poop right here? Is there something that just feels weird or smells weird around here? Because if there is, I'm not going to want to eat from that spot. The second step that I do is I have a connection of gratitude with the natural world. So I want to make sure that I harvest respectfully. I don't usually just take something from the earth. I take a moment and I pause and in whatever way anybody is comfortable with, I often even just ask in my head or out loud, hey, I would like to harvest some of you and eat you. And would that be okay? I actually ask for permission. That's my way. Or maybe it's just a moment of awareness. Yeah, I'm going to harvest the plant. (laughs) And does that feel right? Mm -hmm. Whatever it is. And I like to say thank you. And I feel that is a respectful way because otherwise it's a it's almost like you just take something from someone. I've probably mentioned Robin Wall Kimmerer's book, Braiding Sweetgrass, more than any other single book on this podcast, and I'm going to mention it again right now. Because in it, Kimmerer, who's a member of the Potawatomi Nation, describes something called the Honorable Harvest very beautifully. The Honorable Harvest is a way of life practiced by indigenous tribes across what is now the United States and by Earth-based cultures around the world. A couple of things she mentions in her section on the Honorable Harvest are things like asking permission before taking, never taking more than you need, sharing with others, never taking the first one you see, and giving a gift in reciprocity for what you've taken. 
And Mia's book, The Sierra Forager, includes an opening section on respectful foraging, which I absolutely love. Here are Mia's ethics and rules of foraging. Don't harvest a plant that is the only one or one of only a few of its kind in that spot. An often repeated foraging rule is never to harvest more than one third of the entire quantity. In my opinion, however, one third is far too much. I would suggest like one seventh. Watch how the animals engage with the plants. Don't harvest something that wildlife clearly prefer. And consider the current condition and health of the plants. Don't harvest struggling plants at drought time or in the winter. When we pay attention to these details, take care of the species we're harvesting, and show them gratitude, we develop a relationship that is healthy and sustainable. If we take too much, it becomes a one-sided, unhealthy relationship, and the plants will eventually break up with us. One more thing I really like about Mia's intro is the reminder that if you want to start a plant-focused foraging business, to please harvest invasives only, or plant a wild garden. This is so important and emphasizes the distinction between plants that are ecologically harmful and those that are beneficial. Check out the California Native Plants episode of this podcast for more information on that distinction. But for the purposes of this episode, know that invasive plants, by definition, take over areas where they didn't evolve. And when they do that, they push out a wide range of native plants, which are the vital building blocks for entire food webs. The end result in this scenario is decreased biodiversity which is a big loss for the resilience of ecosystems as a whole. The good news is that there are lots of edible invasive plants. So it's a good idea to remove as many invasive plants as possible, whether or not you're going to use them. And it's just a great bonus if you can also eat some of them, use them as medicine, or make something out of them while you're at it. And then, gladly, with nettle, I can actually harvest it super easily, and I know that I'm not going to harm it. Say I have scissors. Mia's scissor method is great. She basically just grabs the stinging nettles with her scissors, gives them a little trim, and then picks up the piece that she just trimmed off with the scissors so she can avoid touching it altogether and drops it into a bag. If you have to go for bare hands, the okay, thing to do is know. this. At this point, Mia just grabbed a stinging nettle leaf with her bare hands. It's to squeeze so much like that that you break those mechanical pieces. It doesn't always work. Okay. But it does work sometimes. I'm not worried about it. Like what you do is you just go like this and the bottom often is a better place. You go straight down. So now I have not gotten stung yet. Wow. Also, the reason for that is that your fingertips, at least mine from like playing guitar, gardening, they're not your softest piece of skin. Uh Uh-huh. So you got that. Usually you don't get stung at this phase. Now what you have to do is somehow actually fold it. And every touch you do has to be firm because otherwise you'll get stung. So you're crushing those little mechanical things, right? Mm. And then you do a few extra squeezes to make sure all of them are broken. And at that point, you should be fine to just eat it. It's like a magic trick. Yeah. That's so cool. There's no way to really eat a nettle in the field without crushing it into a pillow. Okay. Because anything else, you're going to have to take it home and crush it with a blender or cook it and go with a spoon or... So it depends on how brave you're feeling if you want to I wanna try it. I want to try, try it. one or not. But oh, yeah, let's I, do again, it. I don't promise. Sometimes I get stung in my mouth. Okay. I'll but try it's it. not that bad. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. Can you take a video of me? Sure. I'm going to post this video on social media soon in case you want to see it. It's already rolling. Okay. Here we go. I'm going to firmly grasp a leaf. Yeah? Yes. Okay. Here we go. Yeah. Let's see. Let's Just pick be one. Confident. Be confident. Just go after it. Yeah. Live. <laughs> it's a good life lesson. Of your dreams. Yeah. 
Okay, I'm gonna go for this one right here. And I'm just gonna go, boop, and nothing happened to me. There's a spider on there. Hi, little friend. Don't eat the spider. Don't eat the spider. And then I just go in and I keep crushing? Yeah, make it into a little pillow. Fold the okay. bottom on top of the top. All right, crush, crush, crush. Did you get stung yet? Not yet. These aren't super stingy. Okay. Squeezy, squeeze. <laughs> I'm feeling fine so far. This is Great. going okay. This is going okay. <laughs> now I'm going to test it and put it in my mouth. Do you think All it's right. good? I did a lot yeah, of squeezes. I, think it's okay. good. I popped it into my mouth, and this was my first time ever tasting stinging nettles. It's like wheatgrass. Wow. Oh my gosh, that's so good. That's yeah, not they're bitter. good, right? No, mm-hmm. no, it's not bitter. It's yummy. It's delicious. Mm-hmm. And when they're cooked, they're a little more like spinach. That's why they're hiding behind those little stings. That's why. They're they like, don't be gone me. otherwise. That's so good. <laughs> yeah, okay, exactly. thank you, Mia. After enjoying a few nettle leaves, we walked farther up the path and found a shady spot to sit down and chat for the full interview. We talked about truly local food systems, advice for new foragers, wild foods kids love, how humans can make a positive difference to the planet through foraging, and so much more. All of that right after a short break. Welcome back. Today, we're talking foraging with Mia Andler. Let's get into the full interview. How did you first get interested in foraging? It sounds like that was part of your curriculum in Finland. It was part of my curriculum to know plants and animals, and it was part of our way as a family. And for many Finnish families, they wouldn't even call it a word. They wouldn't call it foraging, but Finnish families back then and some these days went mushrooming and went berry picking together as a Mm -hmm. common activity. Basically, everybody did it. That's amazing. Yeah. So when I came here, I already had the sense that you eat from the forest. And at some point when I was hiking around the Sierras, I was like, well, it seems like there should be something edible here too. And just nobody knew about it. So Mm -hmm. then it was a long journey of asking a lot of questions from a variety of people and finding out what you actually can eat. And how many years do you feel like it took you to get to that point of confidence of eating, you know, a fair amount of wild plants? That's a good question. I think that really it took me maybe two years of like concerted study and probably a few more years of getting interested really in deciding there were things to eat and slowly figuring out how to figure it out. The how to figure it part was not actually that easy here. So that was the piece that took longer. Now we have books like mine, and that helps a lot. Like Kevin and I, who I wrote The Bay Area Forager with, we used to joke about like how at first it felt almost weird that some things that it took us like 10 years to find out because there wasn't mm. information available at that time. Now we say in like a couple seconds in the book, <laughs> and at some point it like felt like selling ourselves short, but really that's completely the opposite. Really, we were just so happy to get to put it all together into a useful piece of information. And since then, like there's so many books out now and there's so much internet information. But back when I was studying this, it was actually very difficult. There was a Ewell Gibbons book from the 60s. It doesn't have any pictures. It just has a bunch of long descriptions and it's for the entire West Coast, probably mm. more for like Washington area. So it wasn't that easy to right. go from there. California's got so, yeah. its own thing going on too. There's yeah. a whole lot of different stuff here. So many ecosystems mm-hmm. here. So it really wasn't actually a totally easy journey in that way. Well, I'm glad you did. Yeah. Now we have fun. your beautiful books. And I yeah. was looking at the intro in Sierra Forager the other day, and it is just, it is so beautifully written, first of all. I love it. Oh, thank and, you. Yeah. And one of the things I really wanted to kind of pick out of that and ask you about is just this idea of what it means to have 
a truly local cuisine oh. and how that's kind of something we've lost. And so I was just wondering if you could kind of expand on that idea a little bit. Oh my gosh, I'm so glad you asked me that because originally I wanted that book to be called Tastes of Tahoe. Mm -hmm. And that was what I was pitching is that I would write an ultra local book and it would be all about like if we could taste the Tahoe region, what would it taste like? Mm -hmm. My publisher felt that there wasn't going to be enough purchases for such a localized book, which they're probably right on. But I'm really fascinated by this idea of what would a truly bioregional culture look like, not mm. just in food, but clothing and language. Like from my travels around the world, I really enjoy tasting local cuisines. I really enjoy seeing local patterns in the weaving and the clothing, the colors, like and how it mirrors the landscape. Like that's just a passion topic for me or how the language sounds like the landscape or describes the landscape and how cool it is when you get to travel from intact culture to intact culture and experience those things. So I really wanna re-encourage that finding of local features, local cultures within our global community. Even if we have mixtures of things coming in I don't want to lose that very hyper-localized expression. I love this idea so much. And it reminds me that, of course, this is exactly how indigenous cultures live all around the world, including here in California, where there's still an amazing diversity of indigenous people living all across the state. And regardless of our own ancestry, we can support these cultures by purchasing hyper-local items directly from the indigenous people selling them, either online or at events where they've welcomed the general public. Often you can follow tribes that are located close to you on social media if you want to find out about these events. So that's one way to support hyperlocal cultures. Another one is, even if our ancestors aren't from the places where we live now, we can still celebrate local foods and the local landscape by creating our own art, stories, poems, and even ceremonies about them without taking those of the indigenous groups around us. Creating these things can be an authentic way for us to honor and connect with the places and beings around us. For me, that looks like drawing in my nature journal, ethically snacking on local flavors, writing poetry and stories that incorporate locally native species, and of course, making this podcast. And so, yeah, it would have to include foods that actually grow there. And we really could be eating much more local and it would be really fun. We could be incorporating a lot more of these flavors into our diet and it's actually better for the planet because these are the plants that grow here. Mm. They're the things that do well naturally without inputs of fertilizer and water. So that's something that I really want to see. And I've always wanted to partner with a cook that is passionate about this because I do not want to do the cooking, even though mm. I enjoy cooking. It's it's too big for me to take on, but to create these kind of experiences for people. Sign me up. I would come to your restaurant. Right? Yes. I love that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Even if it's just featuring the flavors, because it's hard to do a fully foraged cuisine. Like these days, it, it, the amounts that we need are not really realistic and mm. sometimes actually aren't the most like sustainable practice. So even just featuring like sagebrush flavored chicken or, you know, well, ideally you could even go a little bit more exotic than that, than the chicken. But anyway, having like Quail. those, yeah, exactly. <laughs> or having pine drinks or, and, mm -hmm. and companies mm -hmm. are starting to do this. Like there's a bunch of kombuchas that are flavored with local flavors. I know there's nettle kombucha mm -hmm. or bay nut chocolate is becoming a thing. Oh, bay nut truffles in the Bay yum. Area. 
but yeah, to have those for each bioregion, it would be so fun to just have that ability to taste a place. Right. And you already hinted at this, but when we scale these things, right, mm-hmm. and especially in a landscape that's already so disrupted and disturbed, like how do you think about the ethics of foraging and what do you kind of take into consideration when you go out into the wild and maybe other people should too? Yeah. The good news is that a lot of things that are your, what are called weeds these days are edible. So there's a lot of things we can eat that really don't have a negative impact. And if we did this tending the wild model, Mm. we would probably be having less of an impact than our farms do. It is a different way of eating though. So I actually do see that if we were really smart about it and educated ourselves and had this value of bioregionally creating sustainable food systems, we really could do it, but it would be a whole switch of the way we eat. And also it would mean that certain things are not available at certain times. Like right now we think that any fruit and vegetable should be at the grocery store at any season. I actually try to avoid buying tomatoes in the winter. It's not necessary. Mm -hmm. Like you do totally fine without tomatoes. I'm not saying they have a horrible impact. Tomatoes are pretty easy to grow, but it just like, we don't need everything available at all times, nor do we need to have like, choice of excess at all times. In fact, withholding something until it's the right season for it, like peaches are a great example because they're not Mm. sold in the winter Mm -hmm. as much, right? Like that moment when you get to bite into the first juicy summer peach is a celebration. And the first one that didn't come from too far and it's like really sweet. It's actually good. Like that moment is like, that's gratitude. That's when you make the connection and you're not oblivious to that fact anymore. So that's kind of a long answer to it's not just the cuisine or the flavors that need to change. It's also kind of a way of eating and thinking that really would be possible. And I have wanted to actually write a book on suggesting both native and non-native plants for each bioregion in the regions of California that I know as a suggestion for how we could create these bioregional food systems that then perhaps trade or purchase things from each other. That's amazing. And when you go out into the wild and you're looking at plants that are maybe more critical to an ecosystem's health, right? Thinking about a plant that really needs to be there to support the insects or or whatever, or maybe it's a little bit more of a rare plant. How do you approach harvesting from a plant like that? Or do you, or kind of what's the balance you find? I am glad that I have a knowledge base of understanding those systems that would be hard to just know. And I now know this even better because my main job is running a wilderness school for children. Mm -hmm. So I run a nonprofit organization that teaches children about plants and animals, and I train a lot of staff for it. So one of the things I come up against is how do I teach my staff to be able to say yes or no to that kind of question of harvesting? And it's not easy for somebody to learn that quickly because you do need to understand the health of that spot. You need to understand what plants normally grow there. You need to know about the plants. That's a lot of knowledge. So that doesn't seem reasonable to expect. So instead, often there's rules of thumb, like don't harvest more than a third, although even a third is a lot. That's a lot, especially Um, if somebody else comes behind you and does the next third, right? Yeah, so I don't usually, I do way less than that. And then it's just, are there a lot of that plant around? Mm. And how much are you taking? That's an easy way to 
kind of determined for without needing to really know. And then the more you know, the more you'll know. It won't be a question because you'll know if you truly know that spot and you've observed it, which in the permaculture way means that you've observed it for at least a year. Like it's a significant knowledge of that land. Then you can start making those decisions in a more informed way. And I think that's really beautiful too if you are consuming these plants, right? You're I feel like it's easier to enter into a relationship with a place if you have that physical connection. And I mean, I don't know about you, but I am like very much motivated by my stomach. <laughs> like, yeah, I will I follow am. my stomach yes. anywhere. <laughs> and so if I know I got good food from over down that way yonder, like I am going to remember that spot and I'm yeah. going to want to observe it and I'm going to pay attention to it more closely every time I go by in the area. Yeah. So you get that deeper connection. Exactly, which ideally motivates you to take care of that spot, which is why foraging is not usually harmful activity if it's done in a good way. It'll most likely just make you have a reason to take care of that area, hopefully, though it can go both ways. So I do understand when people are concerned. But now most of the plants in my books are plants that are not in high danger of being over harvested. I don't include those plants. Yeah, that's wise. Yeah. Because you don't know if somebody with like this extractive sort of mentality is going to come along and use it. (laughs) No, you never do. And I've been actually I was interviewed by like a TV show film crew for something and they were stepping all over the plants at the same time as we were. That was the very plant we were talking about. I don't remember what the plant was, but I was like, watch out. You're oh gosh, like, you're off. <laughs> you know, and even just that is like, okay, you're not thinking about what you're mm. doing right now. That's difficult. Yeah. Where is it okay legally for people to forage? What are kind of the guidelines on when it is or isn't okay to forage? That can be really tricky. A lot of the national parks have rules about foraging. You can look up or ask a ranger. For example, Yosemite, which is included in the region of my current book, The Sierra Forger, is very particular that you can harvest a certain amount of certain berries in the summer, and that's it. No other foraging. Point Reyes National Seashore, I think, allows you to harvest a certain quantity of mushrooms. Usually the quantity is something that you can yourself carry out and is for personal use. Okay. Commercial harvesting is very rarely allowed. And then state parks really vary. A lot of them just have a don't touch anything policy. Mm depending on what kind of region they're located in, if it's very populated or not, they might have slightly different policies on the ground. Most of them would probably just tell you no if you asked. Right. And then private land is by permission of the owner. Public parks like, or these kind of trails like what we're on right now, I don't know that they really have clear rules. They would all be different depending on the landowner here where we are by the Truckee River, I highly doubt anybody would care about us harvesting some nettles. Right. But often if we have to ask on a large scale, they probably are on the side of no, just because there's liabilities. Like if they say, yes, you can forage and then somebody dies from eating poison hemlock, is that kind of on them? You know, people are worried about liabilities, over harvesting, people doing silly things because people do silly things. Yeah. For sure. No, that absolutely makes so sense. So in populated areas, it can be really hard to find spots that you can legally forage. So wherever you're going, check in advance and see what the guidelines are in that location. Thankfully, for those of us who live in urban or suburban areas, Mia says there are things to watch out for, but there are also a lot of opportunities for great foraging. Yeah. And then my other concern in populated areas, like I think about like the listeners, there's lots of listeners in like LA, San Francisco, mm-hmm. right? Like more bigger cities. 
And you know, you might find some wild mustard growing that would be totally fine to eat, but then at the same time, how do you know if it's been sprayed with a pesticide or herbicide? Like, how, where do you worry about those things? What are your kind of guidelines for finding those foods? Right, that's a great question also. That reminds me that I forgot to tell those of you who are in urban areas, the best way to forage in urban areas is in the neighborhoods. Mm. Eat the weeds is what it is. Uh And the Bay Area Forager outlines that really well. And it would probably apply quite well to LA for the most part. There'll be some differences, but like the weeds are kind of the same. And those places have irrigation. So there's foraging year round. Mm -hmm. Um, It usually is okay with people that you just picked something out of the crack of their sidewalk you know is it even theirs it's unclear like there's a lot of urban spaces suburban spaces especially that you can forage and then yes you deal with different hazards or in addition is there a pesticide that's been sprayed is there a dog that's been pooping on that spot and that's just looking around and assessing the pesticide one is very hard to tell gladly most pesticides unless you're eating a freshly sprayed one isn't probably going to hurt you right that moment and isn't probably going to hurt you if you just ate one if you eat from that spot every day then you should probably find out like if it's a regular thing for you and the dog thing it's just kind of well don't harvest on the side of trails where dogs Mm. tend to walk maybe go just a little further in and if you're worried about some kind of biological dirt or dirtiness or germ likeness, then you can wash your plants. You can wash them before you eat them. You can wash them in a little bit of hydrogen peroxide or a little bit of Mm. apple cider vinegar. And there you go if you're eating them raw or cook them. And then you don't have to worry about the dog. And then some of those like environmental toxins are hard, but then with that one, it's tough. Like a lot of people eat food grown on, right by Highway 5. I'm sure the levels of pollution in those Ooh, plants are yeah. quite high. So it's funny how people get a little more picky when you're foraging sometimes than like, what about the food you buy in the grocery store? Right, like our store? crops are sprayed often unless you're buying exactly. organic. So then, yeah. you know, then that opens up a big can of worms. Mm. That's why I eat pretty much all organic. I realize I'm giving you like a fire hose of information to try to drink from as you're listening to this episode. So what about those of us who are new to foraging? How can we break it down and just get started? What advice would you give to somebody who's just starting out and they're maybe a little intimidated by how much there is to know? I would say, great. I'm so glad you're interested in foraging. That's awesome. It's super fun and worthwhile. And There's a couple different ways to go about it. It usually makes sense to just learn a few plants well that you're encountering regularly. It is really helpful to go out on a foraging walk with someone. That is definitely the easiest way to get interested because otherwise you're having to discover it on your own, which could feel intimidating to not have anybody pointed out even if you're quite sure. So you could start with plants that are really easy, like most people can identify a pine or a fir tree, for Mm -hmm. example. But it is great to go out on a walk with somebody, even just a friend or somebody who knows a little bit more than you, will help. If you're looking for a guided foraging walk, Mia actually leads them. She's got dates for her upcoming wild food walks on her website, which is thisferalfin.com. 
The one that's currently coming up as I record this episode is going to be on July 23rd, 2023 in Tahoe City at 11 a.m. It's two hours of learning from this wonderful, knowledgeable human being, and it's only $30. If you're listening to this after that date, no worries. Check her website for updated information. While you're there, know that you can also book Mia for custom walks or presentations for your group, organization, or family. Again, her website is thisferalfin.com. I'll link it in my show notes. Okay, more tips for beginners. I would say get to know what's growing really close by to you or what you already know from some other context. Cross-reference pictures. Mm -hmm. Don't just rely on one picture, but once you look it up in a book, go on the internet and see different picture angles, different stages of that plant's growth. Look for plants that have other cues besides visual. Those are the easiest ones Mm -hmm. to start with. For example, fennel which is another really common plant, smells like licorice. And there really aren't any other plants that look like fennel and smell like licorice that I could know of in this region. Or mint. Mint smells like mint. A lot of people have already seen it sometimes. So there's just the pennyroyal, but even that's not poisonous. Like you can eat a leaf of pennyroyal totally fine. It's mostly if you ate a ton of it and were pregnant or something. So those kind of plants that have the smell cues too are really nice to start with because it's got a confirmation or like stinging nettle, it stings you. Like something obvious like that is an easier entry point into your foraging. That's great. I love that. And I feel like then once you have that relationship with one plant or a couple of plants and you're going out, then you're going to start to notice more things. Yes. And you're going to start to make deeper observations. Yes, exactly, which is why I actually complimented you on probably comes from working with audio is looking, using all the senses, the taste, the smell, the visuals in a different way, not like really paying attention to color because it takes a little while to develop kind of the plant eye, like how you identify plants, looking at very many different types. Gardeners will have a much easier entry point into foraging because they'll be used to looking at identifying features of plants. So that's also just one way to start, is just looking at very many different types of plants and getting to note the differences and similarities. Yeah, yeah, that's great. This next one is a patron question from Tori. And she's wondering what your favorite California wild food is to share with young kids. Like, what is something that kids go for? Berries Mm. is what kids usually go for. I mean, blackberry harvesting, most people know that and know how excited kids get about blackberry harvesting. I am equally excited about blackberry harvesting. Yeah, so any berries seems like an instant sell. My daughter's way into rose hips because they're an easy to eat teeny little berry. Huckleberries, thimbleberries, raspberries. For those really lucky enough to find wild strawberries, they're amazing. Mm. There used to be a lot of them in California, but aren't as much anymore. But yeah, any kind of berries are what kids go for. I do also love showing kids cattail pollen or any pollen because it's so fun. It's yellow and it sticks on your hands and it's great. Or cleavers that stick to your shirt. Like there's some kid fun plants like that. They also tend to like things with smells, anything more sensory. Like we often make mint tea. Mm. Kids tend to get into all the wild foods, honestly. They love foraging and making things out of things that they themselves get to harvest and then make. They even like flavors that they would never like at home when they get to participate and make it themselves. Oh, 100%. Like I try to give my kids plants from the grocery store all the time and they are not having it. Yeah. But we're running through the redwood forest and they're like, can I eat more of this? And they're like eating redwood yeah. sorrel like right? right and left. 
And well, then it's like, one. Yeah. can I have another one? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. you know, there's tons of it. Yeah. And we're not in a state park. So, yes, you can have more. Okay, but I probably shouldn't let my kids eat like all the redwood sorrel in the whole forest, right? Is there any consideration of like wildlife might want to use this species so I shouldn't take too much? That is a really good question. And there's a lot of that. I think there was a Yosemite ranger or somebody who posted like a picture of berries they were picking and they got a lot of feedback on like, why are you picking berries? Mm. You should leave that for the bears. So it's a complicated question. There are probably years when harvest is scanty and we need to be more observant. It's again about like being mindful and looking around. Are there a lot of berries around? Animals will get the berries before you. They know exactly when they're ripe they're and they are them. there at that moment. They're not waiting for a while. You know, they're way more knowledgeable about this <laughs> than us. So they will get the berries. So are there a lot of berries that year? And especially if you're going year after year, is that a year when there's a lot of berries? Or are you like, like, I think it was last year, was it, what was the big drought year? Was it last year, the one yeah. before? There were like no berries here. And I definitely didn't feel comfortable, except rose hips, which there's just all over. Like that was a year that I was like, yep, yeah, I'm not gonna pick these. Mm. No, I'm gonna leave it for the wildlife. And then other years, there's humongous abundance. And my own belief is that I don't see humans as separate mm -hmm. from nature at all. I just think we're a little misdirected by our guilt. We can definitely interact with our environment in a positive way. I even would go as far as to say as some species like oak trees have co-developed with us mm. and that we're supposed to have a relationship with acorns. Mm. And there are a lot of acorns just falling to the ground, like excess of what would grow into trees, right. complete excess. And I just would encourage people to be a little more kind to us as humanity. I know we have made big mistakes, but there's also a lot of symbiotic, codependent, but in a good way, relationships in nature that would be good for us to enhance and work with without a perspective of guilt, but actually coming from a perspective of hope and believing that we can coexist in a good way. I really love that. That's beautiful. So being human and using things from nature, and in fact, seeing ourselves as part of nature is not bad. It's actually who we are meant to be. What's bad is a mentality that's extractive, or this idea of dominating nature in some way, or this idea of taking something without giving anything back and not living in a reciprocal relationship with the planet. Humans are smart, and we're adaptable, and we can absolutely relearn to live in that reciprocal relationship with the environments around us. And since you mentioned acorns, do you have a favorite way to eat them? Yeah, acorn, like ginger molasses type of, or just molasses. I feel like acorns Ooh. go really well with like fall time spices actually. Oh. So I, they do mask the acorn flavor a little bit. So that's the pity of it, but they match really well with those spices, like nutmeg, cinnamon. Ginger might be a little overpowering, but it's good. The molasses maple syrup is really mm. good with acorns. So I like making them into like sweet things. Like cookies and stuff or like cakes or? Well, because I'm as a mom and a busy person, I'm often short on time. Right, I sure. <laughs> often make pancakes. Oh, nice. Out of acorn flour because it's easy peasy. That's and great. they're really good with maple syrup. Do you use like wheat flour as well or is it? I do not. I often do use a little bit of sunflower. I don't use wheat very much myself. Wheat flour would make it very easy. Okay. Um, even just a teeny tiny bit of it, but you don't have to. It's just sometimes if you don't, which I often don't put anything at all, just do the acorn flour. As long as you cold leached it, it'll still have that glutinous property, mm. though it doesn't have gluten. 
and so you don't need to. But I also don't use eggs a whole lot, so mm. sometimes I'll put Something like another kind of flour in there to hold it together. But yeah, experiment. And it doesn't really matter if they're slightly mushy or like they work out. Nice. Yeah. Still going to taste good. Yeah, they're great. That's fantastic. Okay. Shout out to my patron Tori for having so many fantastic questions this episode. This one is also from her. You know, people often mention like eating wild mustard. Are there any other prevalent weeds or invasive plants that you're like, yes, like go after this one? Are there any, that, especially that are like statewide, very prominent that people can find in whatever region they're in that they could eat those weeds or invasive plants? Yeah, there are a lot. Thistles are actually one that is pretty universally found and most of them are edible. I test them by flavor. They're spiky, but you can actually remove the spikes and the spring thistles, you just remove the leaves and the spikes and the stalks are quite delicious. They're related to artichokes. So Love artichokes. they're really pretty good. You don't usually eat the flower like you do on an artichoke, but mm. you eat the stalk and the leaves and you're good to go. Nettles grow a lot of places like we just harvested any kind of riparian zones tend to have nettles. Pine and fir trees grow a lot of places and pine and fir needles, as long as you're sure it's a pine or a fir and it smells like a Christmas tree, you're good to go. Because <laughs> there is a hemlock tree that is mm. not edible, but it's really rare. So it's not usually an issue. Uh, what else is kind of, I mean, dandelion is like the poster child of the edible plant world. Mm -hmm. It's not as common in California, but most people know how to identify it. Then you had mentioned mallows in some other context. Those are easily identifiable and edible, but sometimes those are ones to watch out for not eating them from polluted places. Mm. Cattails are quite common in a lot of riparian places. Tori was also wondering, since you mentioned cattails, she was also wondering about harvesting their pollen. Yeah. And like what the best time of year is for that. When they have pollen. Okay. <laughs> so that's, yeah, is that too obvious of an answer? It, cattail pollen is obvious. It's bright yellow. It's okay. abundant. And you will know if your cattail has pollen on it. Okay. There's no mystery. Cattails have something in all seasons to eat, whether okay. it's the root rhizomes or the young, what is it officially called? The sausage part that's young, that's green or the pollen. Cattails have something edible in all seasons. Great. So you're not going to go wrong. No, that's except great. that's that is actually a hard one because often they're growing in polluted little teeny oh, ponds and yeah. that is an issue. Okay. So, but hopefully you find them somewhere that's that doesn't have that issue. Okay. Roses, roses are common and the both the flower and the fruit, the rose hip are edible. There's lots of common plants. Okay. There really are and that's really what the Bay Area forager specializes in is these kind of universal easy plants. That's fantastic, and that yeah. is geared toward high population areas. Yes, so. exactly. Which really aren't bad places at all to forage. In fact, sometimes easier than up here in the Sierras. Yeah. That's really interesting. Any common myths about foraging that you would like to dispel or help inform people about? Well, I think one of them would be that foraging is dangerous, that mm -hmm. eating any plants that grow outside of the grocery store, not that they grow in the grocery store, but, <laughs> but that eating plants from the wild is just plain dangerous and you could just die, which is true, but you could actually die if you ate something wrong from the grocery store too. It's just a matter of knowledge and there are a lot of easy to identify plants to forage. So it doesn't need to be that scary of a thing. The other one is that foraging is harmful, which is kind of been 
represented by this leave no trace ethic, which I think definitely had a place in the post-industrial or industrial society, which was wrecking things, mm -hmm. like not caring at all about clear-cutting redwood forests, which is a horrible thing. So it makes total sense that the swing of that was total environmentalism, don't touch anything, because that was needed at that time. I think now, hopefully most places, we have a more balanced way and can now go more to the wisdom of, yes, we actually are meant to interact with our natural environments as long as we're knowledgeable and have a respectful ethic, we can actually make a positive difference. So, and I'm really glad to see that places like the Native Plant Society have contacted me to learn more about foraging because they're realizing a lot of the plants I teach about are not ones that are at all endangered. They're the ones they're pulling out, you know? So hopefully that'll make for more balanced caretaking ethic oriented foraging, which is what the land-based people here would have had. That's wonderful. That. I love that. And my very last question for you is just, after all of the years that you've put into learning about foraging and you've gone out and you've eaten all these wonderful wild foods, what about it still blows your mind or takes your breath away? Everything. <laughs> Nature is one of those things where like, you could never possibly be bored or know everything. If you mm. think you know everything or you're bored, there's something weird going on like <laughs> every little spot of nature for me like I could take anything right here on the ground where there's not even anything in particular happening there's but when I can't even say that anything in particular mm. happening because once I start looking at this I'm like what's happening with these ants what are they doing what's going on with the pine needles and how they're climbing on them and what's the deal with the soil and there's all these little lichens and the more like it's just like an infinite world any moment in nature is an infinite world or all the humbling experiences that I have where like I'm constantly not knowing anything which is why it's actually hard for me to do like to write books and do things because like, the more I know I don't know mm. kind of thing I really feel that in nature like every year I realize how much there is to know and learn in everything every little piece leads you to another thing so it, yeah it's amazing <laughs> i love that thank yeah. you so much mia this has yeah. been super fun oh thank you so much the more closely you look at the natural world the more you see and the more frequently you return to the same places across more seasons and the more you eat food from a place and experience it with all of your senses the deeper your relationship with that place becomes I'm so grateful to Mia for taking the time to show me so many great wild foods so that I can continue to deepen my relationship with the place where I live and the places I visit. I hope that you will do the same where you live. If you need help along the way, remember to check out Mia's books, The Bay Area Forager and The Sierra Forager, and her website, thisferalfin.com. Thank you again to everyone supporting the show on Patreon and everyone who has purchased merch for making the show possible head over to goldenstatenaturalist.com to learn more about both of those things and to get on my email list and check out past episodes. And if you enjoyed this episode, it would help so, so much if you could share it with a friend who might enjoy a snack from their front yard. I always share something interesting from my week at the end of each episode. And this week's is that my husband and I took our kids to Pewter Creek in Winters on July 5th. And it was so peaceful. There was just no one there. We were joking that we need to co-author a book called The Introvert's Guide to the Universe that's full of tips for people who need to avoid crowds and noise and chaos. And one of our tips would be to go to rivers, lakes, or creeks on July 5th when everyone else is at home sleeping it off. 
Do bring a trash bag, though, because not all of the July 4th partiers are practicing a reciprocal relationship with the Earth. Okay, that's all for this one. I miss you more soon when season three begins. I can't wait. Okay, I'll see you next time on the next full episode of Golden State Naturalist. Bye! Bye!